All right, well, we're going to go ahead and begin worship this morning with a scripture reading. I'm going to be reading out of Psalm 148 and then a few verses out of Psalm 149. Keep in mind that this is talking about God as creator and Lord and our praise of God as such. In Psalm 148, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights above. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his heavenly hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the skies. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. He set them in place forever and ever. He gave a decree that will never pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all ocean depths, lightning and hail, snow and clouds, stormy winds that do his bidding, you mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, wild animals and all cattle, small creatures and flying birds, kings of the earth and all nations, you princes and all rulers on earth, young men and maidens, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord. For his name alone is exalted. His splendor is above the earth and the heavens. He has raised up for his people a horn. The praise of all his saints of Israel, the people close to his heart, praise the Lord. In Psalm 149, the first few verses, praise the Lord, sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the saints. Let Israel rejoice in their maker, let the people of Zion be glad in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing and make music to him with tambourine and harp. For the Lord takes delight in his people. He crowns the humble with salvation. Let the saints rejoice in this honor and sing for joy on their beds. Looking at how worthy God is of our praise as Lord, as creator, as everything, as Bo said, we messed it up big time in our sin. And we've put ourselves in a position where we need redemption. And it could only come um, through the Lord himself. And so there's a proper response from man, especially his church, of prayers of confession, times of confession, especially before communion. And so we're going to read a few passages concerning that. This is Psalm 51. This is David confessing after he sinned with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward man, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sin. Remember that phrase. We're going to talk about it. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. 
This next song we're going to sing is out of Psalm 24, verses 3 through 6. I'm going to read it to you. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of His salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek Him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Uh, there was a separation between God and man. Uh, so reconciliation needed to happen to repair that relationship. Uh, so what that uh, relationship was needed was a propitiation, which is a payment that we cannot pay on our own. Only Christ, our Lord, could pay that uh, payment. So in doing that, uh, my part is we're, we're looking at God's answer for man's sin, the cross. So our first scripture reading is going to be Zechariah uh, verse 12. Starting in verse 10. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for only an only son. And they will weep bitterly, bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Let's move down to uh, chapter 13, verse 1. In that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. Move to verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man, my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. It will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it, and I will bring the third part through the fire. Refine them as silver as refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. Second scripture will be in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things pass away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are and from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the world, the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. I'd like to, to end with an anonymous quote that I read a few years ago. Do not find yourself worshiping the symbol of a cross or the works of the cross, but instead be found worshiping our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who accomplished the work on the cross. We pray, Father, we are in awe of you. Father, when we consider the magnitude of our sin, the gulf, as you tell us in the Gospel of Luke, that existed, it was impassable for us to go from you 
from here to you. Only God could come to us and redeem us. And Father, there's such a balance in Scripture where, where you make it clear the one thing that stirs your wrath is sin. And it stirs it against us because we are the offender. Psalms declare you are angry with sinners every day because our sin is such an affront to who you are, to your holy character, to your order, to your very being, Father. And yet you are a loving, merciful God. And so while you are angry with the sinner, you desire his salvation. As you say in Ezekiel, you don't desire the death of the wicked. You would that we would turn and live. And you've made a way where we can do just that. And it is through the cross where you paid the penalty. So, Father, we celebrate as we approach this communion table with a solemn heart, but with a joyful heart. Father, thank you for redeeming us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I wanted to read a quote out of this little book called Christ's Atonement, which I have gotten much benefit from. I don't know who this man is. It's Dr. J. Duncan. He says this, It is the glory of the church to preach Christ crucified and to regard the reproach of the world, which at all times in different forms has been directed against this sacred doctrine of the atoning sacrifice, especially against this doctrine, so frequently and emphatically taught in Scripture that in the sacrifice of Christ, His blood is of central importance. Let us, however, speak of this most solemn and sacred mystery with awe and reverence, remembering that it is rather a subject of adoration and faith than it is of reasoning or argument. It's a sanctuary open to the meek, and to the sorrowful, to the earnest, and to the contrite, but always to be approached with solemnity and godly fear. I've been reading, um, just in my one-year Bible reading, through the book of Genesis I finished a few weeks ago, and I learned something new. The story of Jacob and Esau is is one of uh, the main stories we know in Scripture. You remember Jacob stole Esau's birthright uh, and blessing through deception, through lying. And then because of fear that Esau would kill him, he fled to the land of his forefathers. And he stayed there at least 14 years. And as he came back, as he made his way back to the land of his fathers to, to inherit the promise of God, in Genesis 32, he prayed to God, knowing he would meet Esau, still fearing Esau, his brother, who he'd sinned against, and he rightfully had reason to fear wrath. He prayed to God and said this, Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, as well as the mothers with the children. That's Genesis 32, 11. And so what Jacob did is he divided up all that he had. He divided up his livestock, his family, into three groups. And he sent all three groups before him to meet Esau on the way. And I want to read this passage of Scripture to you, and there's going to be one word that we're going to focus on briefly this morning. 
Verse 13 of Genesis 32, he says, So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, and 20 lambs, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, When Esau my brother meets you and asks you, To whom do you belong, and where are you going, and whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau, and moreover he is behind us. So he likewise instructed the second and the third groups who followed. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him, and you shall say, Moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. How many of you knew that that is the gospel right there? You're going to see it this morning. The word appease literally means to cover the face. You remember out of Psalm 51, what did David pray? God, hide your face from my sins. This became the word in legal Jewish circles for atonement. In fact, in Leviticus 16, if you go read Leviticus 16, the prescriptions and the law of the priests as they were to offer sacrifice, it was constantly used for atonement. And the idea of atonement is just that. It was, it was to hide the one who'd been offended. It was to hide their face from the offenses that had been committed so that they might be received. That's what Jacob wanted to do with Esau. He wanted to hide Esau's face from his previous offenses so that Jacob might be received and see his face. Dwayne read out of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 where Paul states, that God has entrusted to us the ministry of reconciliation and the church pleads with the world, what? Be reconciled to God. God making His appeal through the church to the world. The word reconciled literally means to change or exchange. And what it's referring to in that context in 2 Corinthians 5 is the offer to exchange our relationship to God from being under His wrath to being in His grace. That's God's offer. And He can make that offer of reconciliation to the world because He's been appeased. His face has been hidden. And it's been hidden by the offering of Christ, just as Jacob sent those offerings before Him. And He hid behind the offerings, right? It's exactly the picture of Christ. Christ has gone before us and has himself become the offering, as 2 Corinthians 5.21 says. It's how Paul justifies that doctrine of reconciliation. He says, For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the offering. Jesus has been sent before us as, God, as the offering to appease God, to hide God's face from our sin, so that God might then turn and look at us with favor, as Esau did Jacob and received him. There's so many illustrations of this in the Old Testament, but there's two I want to point out. This idea of reconciliation happening because of something being hidden. In Isaiah 28:18, the verse simply says this, "Then your covenant with death 
will be annulled and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. The word annulled there is talking about in old times when they would make a covenant with each other, they would engrave it with a chisel on stone so that the terms of that covenant were written in stone. And what they would do, if that, if that covenant was to be an old, they would get a paste and smear it over that stone and fill in the letters. They would cover it, hide it. So to be an old. In fact, in Genesis 6, verse 14, when God tells Noah to, to paint the outside of the ark with pitch, the word pitch is the same word used in Isaiah for an old. What's the idea in Genesis 6? It's that picture of Christ yet again. Noah and his family are hidden safely inside the ark, and then they're covered with pitch so that the oncoming wrath would not affect them. They're hidden behind that which covered them. You see the idea in Scripture very, very clearly. It's most drastically seen in the Passover in Egypt. God had told Israel to paint the blood on the doorpost. Why? because the angel of death was coming. And when he saw the blood, he would pass over and they'd be spared. Those who didn't have the blood, they died. And that is the picture of the gospel. That's what we celebrate in communion. It is the central fact of God's work in mankind. In fact, there wouldn't be a history of man a hopeful one at least, without what we celebrate today. So there are so many wonderful illustrations of this word atonement, sending before, covering the face of, of God from our sin. An old Puritan named John Flavel wrote a very famous book, if you read any of the Puritans, called The Fountain of Life. He said this, he said, He that undertakes to satisfy God by obedience for man's sin must himself be God. And yet he that performs such a perfect obedience by doing and suffering all that the law required in our place must also be man. Christ, the God-man, has satisfied the righteous requirement of the law, and he has paid the penalty for sin that the law demands. This he did through the suffering, the offering up of himself. And if he had not done this, the wrath of God, as Jesus said, would abide on us still. John chapter 3. However, for those who would believe in Him and repent, the result is the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life. Just as Jacob hoped to be reconciled to his brother Esau, the one whom he feared, the one who had wrath toward him, he sent the offering before and he appeased him. So God has gone before us and appeased the Father's wrath that Christ looks on us and God the Father looks on us with favor. Well-pleasing was Christ's offering of Himself. So that's what we celebrate with communion. It's what we remember. That's what we proclaim. We proclaim Christ's death, Paul said, until He comes. Our preaching of the cross is never in vain because there is still much sin in the world and much sin in us. And the cross is the only remedy for it. In fact, the cross is more relevant today than ever. And communion, what we celebrate, is more relevant today than ever. We celebrate God hiding His face from our sin.
So who's communion for? Well, it's for the believer. If you remember, in the Passover Exodus, God said, no foreigner shall eat this with you unless they've been bought and circumcised. Then they can eat it with you. Well, the New Testament tells us we have been bought with a price and we've been circumcised with the circumcision of Christ. We are His. It's for the believer. It's a meal of thanksgiving. It's for those who have received Christ in faith. It's also a meal of remembrance. We remember the price of our salvation. Secondly, what manner should the believer partake of this meal? Well, in original times, it was more of a meal. Uh, they would have a feast, a meal, and then they would dedicate part of that mealtime to the elements themselves. Paul uses, though, in, in 1 Corinthians 5, 6-8, through 8, he uses this metaphor of leaven, which is in the Exodus account, right? When, when Israel was to go out from Egypt, which was the picture of slavery to sin, when they were separating themselves from that, they weren't to eat bread with leaven in it. It's the picture of leaving the sin behind and going out as a new lump with unleavened bread. Paul picks up on that use of leaven in 1 Corinthians 5. He says this, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Your boasting is not good. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed let us celebrate, therefore, the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. That's the manner in which the believer should partake, is without leaven. In 1 Corinthians 11, if you want to turn there with us, Paul warns the church further still. He says, whoever, therefore, in verse 27, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. You see, it's a profane thing to on one hand pretend like you celebrate the death of Christ for your sin while yet remaining in it. It's a profane thing. And we've all been guilty of it. Be guilty concerning the body and blood of Christ. Verse 28, let a person examine himself. Then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. You see, God deals with sin in the believer. He disciplines us, but it's not to condemn us. It's to secure that, that hope to cleanse us as a new lump without leaven. So the communic formula, Paul says in verse 23 of that chapter, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. It's interesting to me, Paul received many, um, the, the whole of his revelation from Christ himself as revelation because he wasn't one of the apostles. He came much later, he said. But this communion statement, Paul says, he didn't learn it from the apostles. The Lord himself made sure to tell Paul this. <laughs> I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So what I'm going to ask us to do, if you've never partaken of communion with us here at Waypoint, um, and if you're visiting, you're welcome to this table so long as you have Christ, that you have been reconciled. This is not for someone who is unsure if they're a believer at all. I would ask you to respectfully don't partake of it. It's a serious thing. The whole of Scripture testifies to this work, and we don't want to approach it with flippancy. We want to approach it with seriousness because God takes it seriously. He will judge all mankind on this work. But it's for anybody who is a believer, who has been born again, who's been separated for Christ from the world. But also, I would ask you to do this. Take time, and we're going to give you time now before we partake, to examine yourself, as Paul says. If there's known sin in your life, now's the time to confess it. But even then, if you can't think of open sin in your life, be as David said, examine me, O Lord, and bring out the secret sins of my heart. Paul said it this way, I don't know anything of, against myself, but I'm not justified by that. The Lord justifies me. So ask the Lord to examine you. And if there is something that He says, you need to confess this. You need to turn from this. This is the time to do it. Okay? So we're going to give you time to do that. And then uh, what we usually do here at Waypoint is when you're ready, you come up and you, you get your own bread and you get your own cup. And I would ask the, the males, serve your wives, serve the women of the church. And, um, and this is a meal of remembrance for you. This is a meal of proclamation for us as a church. And we'll partake of communion and have a time of fellowship in that. So go before the Lord now and take some time, please. As you're praying, I want you to just listen to the word. This is Hebrews chapter 10. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which never could take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. He adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Father, as we approach this table, we celebrate the finished work. The offering of Yourself, the shedding of Your blood, that our sins might be remembered no more. Your face has been covered you have been appeased. We have confidence, Father, to approach 
you in the throne room of grace because you live to make intercession for us. And this communion table, it has no saving power, but it is a powerful reminder of the accomplishment of our Lord and what we profess and proclaim. It was for sins that you were crucified. It was for my sin. So Father, may I and everyone else who partakes at this table partake with humility mixed with joy. We have been redeemed. We are no longer under condemnation. We are no longer under God's wrath. We hide behind the offering of Christ so that you see us no more as sinners, but as children. So, Father, may you be pleased as we partake in this because the, the heavens rejoice and sing praises to the Lamb who has been slain from the foundation of the world. And so we join the chorus now, Lord. We pray in Christ's name. When you're ready, come. We're having partaken of communion. We give ourselves, we pledge ourselves afresh to the Lord. Um, that's the response of a believer to what the Lord has done to him. We, we give ourselves in response. But I wanted to read first out of Psalm 73, Psalm of Asaph. It says, I'm continually, continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all of His works.